Hi, folks. It's Sam. I just wanted to say a couple things at the start here. Um, One, we're sharing this premium episode from Behind the Paywall as a treat for you, our beloved quarantined listeners. It's a really fun episode. Matt and I and our friend Jesse Brenneman watched this absolutely insane, um, like truly astoundingly weird right-wing Christian propaganda film called Last Ounce of Courage from 2012. And we talked about what it says about the culture and politics of Christian conservatism, especially as those manifested in the tail end of the Obama years. We had a really great time recording this episode. Jesse's a really hilarious and smart guy, and we think you'll have almost as much fun listening to it. Um, So enjoy that. Second, Matt and I are planning to record a mailbag episode next week um, where we'll answer um, your burning questions about conservatism, about the podcast, about either of us. And we'll try to answer as many as we can. So please send those in. There are no stupid questions. So feel free to send whatever jumps to mind. If you want to ask us a question for that, you can email us at knowyourenemypodcast at gmail.com. That's knowyourenemypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send your question to our Twitter account, which is no y r enemy pod. So it's at no y r enemy pod on Twitter, and send those questions in as soon as you can. But by um, this Thursday, April 9th, because we're going to record the mailbag episode next week. And uh, for those, we'll shout out people by their first names. But if you don't want us to use your name, uh, let us know that in your email or tweet. With that said, I hope everybody's um, staying sane, staying healthy, staying away from other people, and we hope you enjoy this episode with Jesse. We are planning to do more of these uh, Know Your Enemy movie nights, so if you like this episode, consider subscribing to the Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash knowyourenemy. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash know your enemy we're going to be putting out more and more premium episodes in the next few weeks so email us or tweet us your questions and enjoy this Don't say anything. We need to be Radio Lab. We need to have the moment where one of us picks up and is like, "Hello, hi, hello, hey, hey, hey." It's yes, it's me. Hey, I can talk. Okay, hi. Look, I'm something of an audio savant. I can tell. We just recently got a review that said I had to stop listening. The audio was so bad. But what that meant, what that <laughs> meant was, um, you're doing something really interesting here. I think. I think so. <laughs> I think you guys are, are sort of pushing the boundaries, not only of political conversation, but of like formalism and like the concepts of a podcast. Yeah. What's bearable to listen to from minute to minute? Well, this is a good way to introduce um, the guest and the episode, because with us today, this is Sam, this is Know Your Enemy, a bonus episode. You know who we are, because you, you subscribe to this um, podcast. And I'm here too. Matt, your beloved co-host, Matt Sitman is here. Beloved, strong word. Um, and <laughs> Tolerable. <laughs> today we have with us uh, Jesse Brenneman. Hey, guys. A huge friend of this show. So much so, Jess- Jesse 
is so important to the show that he basically advised us on how to make a podcast. In the I, first yeah. So if you like Know Your Enemy at all, then... He's sort of the shadow producer. I'm the non-murdering, non-terrible um, person, Phil Spector, of, uh, <laughs> of this. I mean, okay, take a... I, I'm, I'm a good... Uh, what's the good Phil Spector? There might not be one. I'm a... I'm a good guy, and I helped the podcast get off the ground. Phil Spector is the only person who's ever produced good music. It's unfortunate <laughs> that he's also a murderer. That's why music has gone downhill ever since he went in jail. And I, you know, at the end of the day, I guess society makes its choice. But um. <laughs> but Jesse is a longtime radio producer, journalist. He uh, abandoned New York well before the coronavirus to go live on a compound <laughs> in Montana. Very wise for, forethought on his oh. part to do that. I like to think of Jesse's Montana estate as the Know Your Enemy safe house. Yes. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 shit, if, shit, if shit ever hit the fan, I know Jesse would take me in. This is the, yes, that's true. I'm, uh, this is also the Know Your Enemy, like, seed bank. Like, you know, the the um, thing in, in Scandinavia, wherever it is, <laughs> they have, like, seed? all the original seeds in case there's ever, like, a global... Dist- I'm keeping all the original, like, podcast files and also, like, original PDFs of Norman Podoritz's book. And <laughs> if there's ever any kind of global crisis like this one, I will have the original, the only surviving copies of all those things. Yeah. The way some people are hoarding um, uh, hand sanitizer, Jesse is um, hoarding copies of making it. <laughs> um, but Jesse, Jesse used to be, I don't know how you want to be produced or introduced. I'm just going to keep saying things about you. It's a great question. Go ahead. You used to um, be a producer on uh, WNYC's show on the media. Which right. um, I love. I think Matt loves. Matt appeared mm-hmm. on it. We got a big boost for Know Your Enemy by Matt's appearance on that show. That's right. Probably facilitated th- through some which way or another by our connection to you, Jesse. Um, <laughs> so we owe you very much. A lot of thanks. Um, oh, and well, we're so happy to have you on the show today. It's my pleasure. And I owe you thanks for, I think, in some manic state several months ago when I texted you. I think I was at the gym and just feeling high on endorphins and i texted you and said you should have an, a film correspondent and it should be me and i'll watch all the terrible <laughs> movies that have ever been made and then i'll tell you about them um which is like trying to just take something that i already do and give it some meaning or purpose in the world so thank you that's the same thing that spawned know your enemy which was that like matt and i would get drunk and do drugs and have long conversations about <laughs> conservatism now we've monetized that um, into a product that we put out into the world. I mean, what we've all done is we've yeah. all developed our personal brands, and that's a wonderful thing. Putting product into our bodies and putting product out into the world. That's what Know Your Enemy is all about. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. Man, the content factory. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's, such a, it's such a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much for having me. I, um, you know, here, I am happily here in Montana in my bunker, which until yesterday was a, was a very nice little safe house until I had a washing machine malfunction and i spent the morning um like imbibing literal sewage um oh no you're not supposed to eat it jesse i spent the morning (laughs) imbibing uh metaphorical sewage in the form of this film and then cleaning up literal sewage from my basement so i um i currently have one ear to the other room that i'm sitting in to hear if anything starts to uh catastrophically melt down again in which case i might have to run run away yeah well jesse that was a artful transition to this movie we're going to discuss. Right. So Jesse Brenneman, the Know Your Enemy film correspondent, newly minted and appointed, please introduce the first in the Know Your Enemy film series, a film called Last Ounce of Courage. 
Indeed. Uh, well, as you said, I selected this film, but in many ways, this film selected me. Um, <laughs> my experience with this film is several years ago, I was staying in Portland uh, for, a, for a month when a family member of mine was in the hospital. And uh, we were staying at a friend's house and he had a HD antenna. So he got like five or six television channels, um, which were like local ABC correspondents. And then there was a channel called Grit TV, which is um, a channel entirely for men who are between hernia mesh surgery lawsuits. Um, <laughs> it's just uh, episodes of it's Westerns and like touched by an angel and anything that's like very uh, macho in a sort of old man way. Um, so that was the only channel we really watched and it was a great uh, balm during a difficult time. And one night we were, I don't know, hanging out, I guess and we flipped on the TV and we caught what ended up being the ha last half hour of this movie, last ounce of courage. And by the end of it, we were, screaming so loudly that the neighbors actually like complained to the landlord about how much noise we were making. And I had never watched the whole movie, but that last half hour was so potent it stayed with me for a long time. And then when I thought about, you know, Know Your Enemy doing uh, the Lord's work here of kind of trying to understand the conservative mind and the conservative movement, you know, the, the way that I feel like you have to understand any movement is through the culture that it produces. Um, because I think in those moments you really see the id of the you know mm -hmm. the, the the people who are really transmitting something entirely pure some of it's propaganda but yeah. i think the far more interesting films are the ones where they really really believe that this is what the world is yeah and they're making a movie and they're showing you how they feel and it's and you know and it's also i think it helps that it's typically for literally preaching to the choir it's for the audience yeah in the movie so it's like it's not trying to effectively convince anyone. It's just trying to make people who already feel that way, like remind them of what they believe. So it really is like stepping into the clubhouse or the, you know, yeah. fun house in this case. Um, like as John Gann said on our last episode, like we have to understand the realm of fantasy um, and affect and, and feeling in order to, mm -hmm. um, and imagination to really understand um, political movements. And so uh, what you're saying tracks with that. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's also like, I, uh, I love bad movies and I grew up watching them with my mom. And I think that what I sometimes try to explain to people is that like, yes, there's the ironic level of this is so bad, it's funny. But I think what makes a bad movie or a bad TV show really, really great is when someone is really, really showing you who they are. Yeah. And they are betraying, they're showing you what they want to show you, and they're showing you a lot of stuff that they don't necessarily want to show you. And I think the worst bad movies are the ones that are just boring. The best ones are the ones where you're, you know, inadvertently sitting down and having a long conversation with an absolute maniac. A little bit of background, Last Ounce of Courage was released in 2012. It was released by uh, the film company Rocky Mountain Pictures, which I think most famously also released uh, 2016 Obama's America by Dinesh D'Souza. Ah, right. Um, so it's a, this is a quality art house operation we're talking about here. All you need to know about Rocky Mountain Pictures is that it was a fairly short-lived entertainment company that um, for its majority of its short existence made uh, right-wing conservative Christian propaganda films. Um, most notably Dinesh D'Souza's 2016 Obama's America, and then some even, I think, more insane uh, movies like this one, Last Ounce of Courage. Listeners, if you want to play along at home, you can watch Last Ounce of Courage 
on YouTube, which is what I did. I don't, I don't know what everyone else did, but I will put the link to it in the show notes. So if you want to stop right now and not have this um, real fucking roller coaster of a film spoiled for you, then you can go watch the film right now um, on YouTube and uh, and then and, you know join with us on the ride we're about to go on. Um, otherwise, you can also just keep listening because I think we'll make it clear what the hell is going on here uh, at every moment. So with that said, Jesse, please provide a synopsis. Jesse, before you do that, I, I did want to say it's really important to know that this film begins with the audio of Ronald Reagan's famous 1964 speech on behalf of Barry Goldwater, the Rendezvous with Destiny speech. And in fact, another clip of that ends the film. So this film is is bookended with, uh, I mean, it's kind of the speech that launched Ronald Reagan's political career yes. uh, or took it to the next level, kind of made him more of a national figure because I think you know, some right-wing uh, wealthy person purchased some kind of, this was like televised. It was almost like a, you know, 15-minute ad. So it's a famous speech, and it's referred to as the Rendezvous with Destiny speech. And it kind of, you know, what hmm. it evokes is, you know, the coming specter of communism, statism, and, you know, could this be the last generation of Americans who really know freedom? I, I didn't know that about the speech. I, I just wanted to quickly say that I think that if that's if that's the case about the wealthy person sort of bankrolling that speech, it's so incredibly apropos that they should use it in the film because, you know, as we might discuss later, like the whole backstory of all these films is almost always wealthy financiers and bankrollers um, propping up these absolutely dog shit production companies and just like forcing these ideas out there. So it would be absolutely beautiful um, if that's the case um, and that they chose to use it for the film. I want to just inter interject because I hate to, I hate, in fact, or in some ways I like, but I hate to uh, contradict Matt about uh, conservative history. But the thing is that the, actually the two quotes from the film, the first one is is not from that speech. Oh, it's from 1961, isn't it? It's from 1961, oh. and but but still, just as appropriately, and he used that "freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction" line in lots of speeches. Mm -hmm. Right. But the one that that full quote comes from was a speech on March 30th, 1961, which he gave appropriately enough to the Phoenix Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> but freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. But I think that the, the quote at the end from, from 1964 is from that speech, Matt, from the, from the Goldwater speech, yes, A Time for Choosing. The, the, yes, so that's that. That's just that's a very important speech in the history of conservatism, and especially the the kind of mythological self understanding of conservatives. Right. So, just wanted to point that out. So this movie, I think, you know, we'll get we're going to go beat by beat by beat, but the whole movie can really be summed up in one statement, folks. We're saying Merry Christmas again. <laughs> So Jesse, we get the the Ronald Reagan clip, yeah. um, but then we're 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 quick, quickly introduced to a family, 
and this family's last name happens to be Revere. Right, which for for very observant listeners, they will notice a little historical <laughs> reference there. Uh, of course, to Paul Revere, the man who, who uh, as, as history yes. tells us, uh, told us that the British were coming. And this man, Bob Revere, he's on a mission of his own uh, in this film. Um, I would say not not only as important, but more important than Paul Revere's mission. Um, I, I think there's so much to break down. I'm going to do just yeah. a very, very, um, very broad overview, so that and then we can go beat yes. by beat. So basically, yes. the plot of this movie is uh, there's a man named sure. Bob Revere uh, who, interestingly, is played by the same guy who played Jimmy in Roadhouse. He is um, that's right, the oh rich guy's God. like crazy psycho killer mm-hmm. um, henchman. Who, uh, well, you should see Roadhouse if you haven't, but basically he's like this super macho fighter. And in this movie, he looks like, um, like just a little old grandpa, basically. Well, um, no, no, he's that's viral. not right. He, he, we, oh, yeah. We meet him he's, he's uh, still in, his badass, Harley, sure. in his Harley um, get up. His name, and, uh, actor's yeah. name is Marshall R. Teague, if you want to look him up. So Bob Revere is, uh, we, in the meat of the film, he is the mayor, the part time mayor of a small town, and his son died in Iraq. Um, he went over to serve proudly, and he died, and it was very hard for his widow and his parents, Bob and his unnamed wife, and they are mourning for many years. Uh, then the widow and her son, Bob Revere's grandson, come back to the town of Kingston Falls. The, grands- the grandson named Christian. The grandson named him Christian, Chris Revere. The film is full of these subtle notes, and it's just really something. And he gets back to this town where people are not saying Merry Christmas. And in fact, most people in the town don't even seem to know what Christmas is or the fact that you can say Merry Christmas. They don't really remember that there was a nativity story. They don't... Like, Christmas has been so completely stripped of the world um, just through... um, basically people just not fighting back. I mean, it wasn't even really an mm-hmm. aggressive thing. People just stopped fighting. And first, young mm-hmm. Chris Revere, who's a teenage, a young teenager, he basically says... Sort of emo, well, sort of emo. Very emo, very much of a certain emo <laughs> moment. He has the haircut that I badly wanted to have when I was like 14 years old. But I, but I couldn't because I'm Jewish. I can't have that hair that like falls cool I, across Sam, your forehead. I had curly hair as a kid and I wanted straight hair so bad. I thought that if you had have that straight hair that fall, fell across your forehead, you were the coolest person in yes, the world. Yes, we all thought that. Like, like Chris, Chris Revere. So Chris mm-hmm. comes back um, and long story short, he basically is like, what did my dad die for? when he went and died. Uh, a good question, which the film doesn't really address, which we'll come back to later. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. um, and he sort of says, everyone in this town's being a huge uh, whiner and we need to start saying Merry Christmas again. The mayor of the town is kind of shocked out of his um, like 14-year coma. And he, being the mayor, is like, you're right, we need to start putting up Christmas decorations. Long story short, uh, the town goes into meltdown. Everyone's really happy they're saying Merry Christmas again. The government gets involved and says, you need to stop saying Merry Christmas uh, there's a lot of fighting about it back and forth. Um, the ACLU gets involved. The AC- an L- ACLU-type organization yeah. gets involved. Um, and then just, just to cut to the end, at the end of, the, at the end of it, um, everyone starts saying Merry Christmas again. And not only that, but they all remember the military and the children who are putting on a school play overthrow the kind of nebbish uh, principal and his... <laughs> 
and his gay counterpart. Gay Broadway directing friend. The, the, yeah, it's never stated, but the obviously homosexual yeah. high school theater director, um, yes. They're trying to put on a Christmas pageant that is called a Space Odyssey, which is like a winter pagan celebration, something like that, which is cool, by the way. Um, and the kids subvert that and put on a Christmas pageant, and they all remember Christmas. The mayor gets thrown in jail for saying Merry Christmas too much and for putting a cross up on a building, and then he gets let free, and everyone... Um, has a come to literally come to Jesus moment, and we all start saying Merry Christmas again. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. to like historicize, right? Like this is this is 2012. This film comes out, right? So it's the height of the Obama yep. years. Like this, the Tea Party is really feeling their own. Yeah, exactly. And this is like what, what's what's striking about this, and maybe it's just especially watching it in this moment where like we have like a genuine global crisis, like life and death. Uh, not to bring the podcast down a lot, but like where like really <laughs> fucking like questions of who deserves to live, who deserves to die, like the the level of political stakes that we're experiencing right now are so high. To watch a movie and be returned to that moment in 2012, where an, an, a huge portion of of the right thought of the question of whether you're allowed to say Merry Christmas or not, right, was. Uh, an ex- existential crisis on the same level was part of what made watching this movie today. I watched it today so incredible, like so like vertigo inducing and like and absurd in a way. Th- this really was a moment in 2012 where you know Obama's in power, yep. uh, you know things are okay, the economy's recovering, and every night on Fox News you're going to have the war on Christmas, Chiron come up, and that's yep. going to be the and literally in the film, yes. When they watch Bill Re- Bill O'Reilly, exactly. Eighty-five percent of Americans say they're Christians. Christmas is a federal holiday mm-hmm. signed into law by U.S. Grant, and we're living in a time where some retail outlets will not say Merry Christmas. Insane. Um, some things we learn at the start. Um, yeah. So we actually the the son who's killed in Iraq, uh, yeah. Thomas Revere, son of Bob Revere. Uh, we learn some things. We we actually see we begin. In this kind of with this idyllic family, we we see Thomas Revere kind of make the decision to sort of enlist, and he and he gets called to duty. And you know, there's the scene at the station where he gets on a train, and mm-hmm. the, da- the his dad, his pregnant wife is there. Yeah, his pregnant wife is there, and um, the the father as the train's kind of pulling out of the station, we see the father who himself is a Vietnam vet. Yes, let's proudly. not forget this. Pra- this figures importantly into the plot. Uh, a Vietnam vet riding on his Harley kind of as the train is pulling away. Um, again, we see Thomas go off to war and we see these kind of videos he sends back to his wife and family. And and then we actually get him like the scene where he's killed and then the, uh, uh, the, the military um, escort kind of shows up at the door announcing to the parents that he's died. Now, I, I, sh- I should tell listeners, uh, so... I didn't look anything up about this movie. I didn't know where it was going. So we're introduced to this family, the son who's killed, and, the, and but he dies in the first like 20 minutes of the movie. So yeah. you're thinking- I mean, even less. He dies right away. Even less, yeah. So you're thinking, where is this going? And, yeah. then, and then we're introduced again to Bob Revere, not as the Harley riding Vietnam vet, but as the friendly town pharmacist. 14 years later. 
and he has not aged one bit. I don't. I know. I don't want to. I don't want to take us in this direction because it's stupid. But like, I was. I spent a little bit of time trying to figure out the timeline because if he was in Iraq, it's, it's like it's meant to be like 2017, 2018. I guess it's set slightly in the future. Yeah, which yeah. is why you see a it's lot unclear. of future. Best not think. Best not. Best not think I'll about cut it this out. too I'm sorry. much. Yeah. This is a waste of time. Yeah, um, it's go on. set but, fourteen years is more of an ambiguous term. But, it's not literally fourteen <laughs> years. Yeah. So we're introduced to Bob Revere as the friendly town pharmacist uh, over a decade into the future. Now you might think this might just be a scene where, you know, we see him standing behind a counter, sure, you know, handing out pills, but actually. There's a, a no, no. seemingly Hispanic Latinx motorcycle gang in the movie, and we're introduced to Bob as a pharmacist with one of these gang members <laughs> having been shot in the gut. In the gut, and they come to Bob for. Um, they come to the pharmacy. <laughs> yeah, a quick medical <laughs> patch up. And this is not explained, but, and one of the gang members is a little person. Yep. Yep. Revealed in a way that was deliberately for comic effect, like late in the scene. Yeah, they right. lift him up yes. onto the counter to yeah. talk like a yes. child. So, so here's Bob with this uh, uh, Latino motorcycle gang. And this is, I, I was watching this last night with Max, and I turned to him and I said, Max, this is what we call Chekhov's gun. <laughs> the motorcycle gang. Um, you're such an avid yes. consumer that, 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 you're, that you know you know that this motorcycle gang will somehow play into the yep. um, you know, final resolution of the plot. And we're not really given too much more on this motorcycle gang other than at various points throughout the movie, mm. they're like hanging out in this pool hall or bar mm -hmm. and like watching on local TV the like news accounts of everything going on with the mayor who, remember, patched, patched up their uh, member with a gunshot wound and kind of rooting yeah. for the mayor and kind of observing all this unfolding. I'm going to keep doing this unhelpful thing, which is interject just just little things that I noticed that were mm. like stuck in my brain. I have one of those too. Just, they just took me completely out of the film. <laughs> this guy gets his gut sewn up, presumably, by At the, the pharmacy. pharmacist slash mayor. Yeah, it's a shot. Like it's clearly a shot through his lower abdomen, like yes. probably through his at least a kidney, maybe also his liver. It's revealed to comedic effect that he actually shot himself by accident, so there's no criminal wrongdoing going on here. But then after he's sewn up, he gives the mayor the most aggressive hug in which his yeah. giant stomach is slammed directly into the the mayor's yeah. body. Like, like I know this is not the most important point, but he is. No, I had the exact same observation. Uh huh. And they all give him hugs. In fact, it's not just the main one. There's an extended scene where after he sewed them up and they told him about the accident, three of the bikers all give him extended yes. hugs, and we watch it all happen. Which is uh -huh. which is a weird thing to observe. The guy who literally just got shot in the gut does not appear to experience any pain as a result of like shoving this man's He's body in in, into his gut. He's embarrassed. He's more than anything, he's a little bit kind of sheepish about the whole thing. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. As mentioned, this is 14 years in the future. So um, the, the widow of the Revere's son, uh, yeah. Carrie, Carrie Revere. She's been in California, I think. She's been in California. She's 14 years, she moved oh, away. Oh, thus Christian's haircut. Yes, and but now they're back. And this leads to Christian kind of going through his dad's old soldier stuff. What is that? It's my dad's medal from the war. So, do you want to go shoot some hoops with me and my friend? A big box of his stuff. And 
in this is a Gideon's Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, Which we know from the home videos that, that uh, his father Thomas just had with him his whole, ever since a young boy, he was just nuts for that Gideon's Bible, and he took it everywhere with him. And, and, and so um, Christian Revere takes this Bible into school. Yeah. Well, before that, actually, if I might interject, the first sure. indication that something is wrong in this world is when I believe the widow is uh, talking with the uh, with Bob and his wife with her uh, husband's parents about how life has been in the town and what they've been up to. And one of the things that they've been up to is they've turned this old church into a mission center for the homeless. And they're talking about doing that. And they say, you know, it's the old church with the big old cross that used to be out front. And she says, of course. And they say, we had to take the cross down. It offended some people. Mm-hmm. Right. Now... Just, this is an important point, I think, and it's something I'm going to come back to a lot with this movie, which is, and I think this is true for many, many, many of these movies, the people who make these movies don't actually understand the argument that they're engaging with. So, like, they're they're taking something that they say is, like, world historically scary, like the death of Christmas, but they can't even really engage with the other side's argument. They can only invent things that they think would happen, but that don't actually track. So it's like, why would you take a cross off a church? <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't like, like anyone who's ever been to any town in America knows there's crosses everywhere. Like there are crosses all over New York city in, in some of the neighborhoods and in rural places. And it's like, but they're, they say it as if like we had to take the cross down, you know why, like people got upset. And it's just like, that I think is the the backbone of this film. It's like you don't actually understand what the complaint is, or what separation of church and state mean, or what any of this means. Right. But it's a you know, I mean, like to to acknowledge the imaginative component of this. This is like the fever dream. Like this is just the version right. of it that exists in the pure fantasy, the nightmare. Well, well, Jesse, to to that point, uh, to your point about them not even really understanding the argument. Uh, th- that's a good way to finish the story about Christian in the Bible. Long story yes. short, he takes the Bible into school. It's in his locker. And then we there's this like phone call that like, Christian got in trouble <laughs> at school, or he's called to the principal's office. And, yeah, and, some, and there's some for, speculation about like, did he bring a knife or a gun? Or like, what did he do? Right, right. And, and so there's um, the grandparents, B- Bob Revere and his wife, Christian, his new kind of girlfriend, I think her name's uh, Maddie. Mm-hmm. Maddie Maybe. Rogers, yeah, um, she's there too for some reason. She just is allowed to go into the principal's <laughs> office with him, uh, and the principal pushes across this sort of package of contraband. It's wrapped in like brown paper, and yeah. it's sitting there, and we don't know what it is, and we don't know what it is until we learn it's the Bible. Yep. Now, yep. now to your point, this happens, but then one of the characters in this sort of odd meta moment goes, "Is there actually a rule against?" Bibles being brought into school? And of course, there's not. And then the principal, someone points this out to the principal, and the principal says, well, it's better safe than sorry. The principal implies that these, that they're going to be sued. Yeah. They have this talk, and the principal's <laughs> right. like, our lawyer said, just, you know, please get this thing out of here. And they all kind of go along with it. And then they go out into the hallway, and they meet the, the janitor. Um, the magical black janitor. The magical black janitor. Lenny. kind of just shuffles up. Lenny. He sort of shuffles mm-hmm. up, and he's like, hey... um, you know that's that's uh, that's bullshit. Like they can't do that. They, there's no law against that. And uh-huh. then he just kind of shuffles yeah. away with his mop. And Bob Revere, who is just like also kind of in a catatonic state for a lot yeah. of this, he's just kind of drifting yeah. from scene to scene. He goes back into the principal's office and is like, 
hey, is there a law against that? And the principal is like, oh, no, of course better not. Better safe than sorry. Um, <laughs> better safe than sorry. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, the, again, it's like the whole concept, they admit that their concept has no teeth. They're like, well, there aren't literally laws telling us not to do it, but we basically feel mm-hmm. like we shouldn't do it. Well, well, two things. One is, one is the principal is also being characterized here and introduced, and he's like clearly like yeah. a a wimpy, bald, um, like yeah. cuck type liberal figure. Um, he's a big city type ACLU type. That's that's clearly established. But also, like th- at this moment when I was watching the film, I thought, wait, what? Like, why? If you're if you're building mm. this universe in which Christmas is outlawed, why is the big news like what is the big revelation here like two seconds after this conversation oh it's not actually against the law people are just too scared like i thought like well this is going to be a universe in which it's actually illegal and so in order to do something about it you have to engage in some sort of civil disobedience and disobey the law in order to do what needs to be done and at this point in the film and i don't know if this is really undermined later i thought oh my god they don't even want it to be against the law because then people are going to have to break the law, which is enforced by, for example, the like hot cop in the Cops. movie. And, and in fact, it has to be a thing where people are just unwilling to stand up for what is right, despite yeah. the fact that it's not against the law. Like, I was like, yeah. wait, what the fuck? If you're creating this universe in which like libs have taken over and are, have, have, have made Christmas impossible to celebrate, why wouldn't you just make it a thing where it's actually against the law? Well, Sam, it, this is where, you know, this is this movie, I should say, kind of captures the gestalt of my childhood yeah. in some ways, uh, the mix of patriotism and Christianity. Uh, but one of the lines that the church I grew up in always would say is, like the pastor would say this, or a Sunday school teacher, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Oh, that's <laughs> great, Yeah. And so I th- right. th- it, this really is, it's not even like a legal, yeah, it's not even like a legal question. It is about like ordinary people, quote unquote, standing up for right, their when rights. When it's inconvenient. Um, yeah, but it's it's kind of, as Jesse pointed out, we get the, the bit about the cross and the mission, that's an early sign that something's amiss. And then yeah. really with this Bible incident, the movie really pivots. Right. And and I think importantly, Chris is the one who is understandably upset at his father's death and sort of trying to process that. And mm-hmm. when this happens and he sees the whole town behaving like, you know, cucks, basically, and just sort of being like, oh, well, I can't say Christmas anymore. And he's the one who I think really, you know, I think at the dinner table says, mm-hmm. what did my dad die for, Bob? That's what happens in war. No, I mean, why'd he die? He gave his life for his country. So, what are we doing? What are you doing? Chris. And the answer is the right to put up Christmas decorations on your house. Yes. Um, Uh And I I just want to say, I just want to interject, watching this movie through... I, I was really interested in the fact that, like, as I think you, we often see with certain thinkers, it's like you're so close to having a breakthrough. And I think what's so <laughs> interesting is up until this point, this could be building to a really good anti-war movie because, <laughs> right, like, it, yeah. it kind of depicts this world where, like, the dad fought in a war that, or the grandpa fought in a war that didn't matter. His son fought in a war that didn't matter and is ongoing and he died there. Everyone's depressed nothing really means anything the question is like what did my dad die for and of course the actual answer if the movie took a different term would be nothing yeah 
global strategic aspirations of American empire and oil prices. Right. I was like, you know, everything they're feeling in terms of their like, you know, milieu is or of their malaise rather is completely right. It's like, yeah, things are really bad. Um, but of course, yeah. that's not actually the answer. Isn't that he died for nothing? And what's the point of all this? It's that he died for our right to put up angels on our houses. Yeah. Yeah, and and we but we do learn a little nugget about Bob Revere here, which is that apparently what he did in Vietnam was, you know, a, a highly elite, uh, yes, being a part of a highly elite like rescue team that rescued prisoners of war. So that's another yep. right wing dog whistle. Yeah. Um, I mean, right. for, for a long for a long time, maybe even and still on parts of the right, the idea that there were prisoners of war that were like rotting in Vietnam. You know that our government simply chose not to intervene right. to rescue them or get them back or deal with the the Vietnamese government to get them back somehow or make that a part of peace conditions or whatever. So that's a another nice little um, Easter egg, sort of like the idea that the people who yeah. wanted to abandon the war were people who were willing to abandon and leave behind uh, the POWs who are still captured, like in the north by by the Viet Cong. Yeah, and. And I should add, this was a, a something that uh, Ross Perot, to go back to 1992, our, our last episode, Ross Perot was kind of involved in that. That's right. Too. He was big figure in that stuff. Yeah. Not to that level of seriousness, but a very important subplot that is cropping up that we only really need to address once is that the widowed mom, um, basically on their first day back in town, meets up with her dead husband's best friend, who is now the chief of police. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, that's right. their first meeting... Uh, her kid and some, and maybe his yeah. kid and some other kids are playing basketball. They these two adults meet and they just have like outrageous sexual chemistry. Hell yeah, they're both um, so they're hot, just like smiling and winking and touching each other. And all the kids are just so excited that their parents might get laid with each <laughs> other. Um, and then and then that subplot basically goes on th- underneath the movie. And everyone, this is true in Hallmark movies too, which I also often enjoy watching. Everyone is really excited for the widow to get laid. Um, and the mom of the dead son is like, there's a lot of like, I saw you talking to, you know, Kyle earlier and like just a lot of Mm -hmm. investment in her hooking up with this cop. Everyone just wants it to happen so bad. Now, the other thing I should say, it's sort of around this time that we also learn about another character who we don't really know what happened to them. And this is the Revere's have a daughter. Yes. Who we yes. learn simply simply thought differently. She's kind of portrayed About as a some rebel. Important issues. Yes, and I don't want to spoil who she ends no, up being. No, I, I but, was truly but there shocked is another, by the twist. I was too. It was really a kind of. Um, <laughs> it really was a kind of Fight Club moment, where, at the, where you get to the end of the movie and you and you reinterpret everything that has happened up to that point. The movie now breaks into two streams. So one stream. Mm-hmm is Bob Revere is the mayor and he's kind of gotten, he's woken up from his fog and he's, he's woke like, now. You're right. He's woke now. He's woke. He's conservatively woke, but he basically takes back control and decides that the city is going to start celebrating um, Christmas. And he's armed with all these decorations. And most importantly, he's armed with facts and logic that he mm-hmm. uses. He spent a long time on the internet researching the laws. Yes. he. Yeah. There's a great line where, uh-huh. where his like deputy mayor who's also a little whiny guy is like, Mr. Mayor, you're, what are you doing here so early in the morning or something? And he's like, I woke up at midnight and I've been on the internet ever since and I feel great. <laughs> and it's like the most conservative old man statement in any yeah. film ever. So he he's doing that. And then meanwhile, at the school where the kids all are obviously all go, they're preparing for this winter pageant and it's been written by the principal. It's being directed by this like cartoonishly flamboyant 
man who is like wearing a black turtleneck. And when we first meet him, he's sitting in the audience of the school theater, literally saying like, oh, Broadway, you fickle mistress or something. (laughs) Yeah. uh uh (laughs) So the two storylines are Bob trying to save Christmas in the town and the kids who are doing this lame, uh, pagan, woke ceremony celebrating aliens and the The universe. Space Odyssey. And they decide that they need to take, Space Odyssey, they need to take back the Christmas pageant for Christ. And Jesse, very conveniently, this kind of space uh, pageant is, of course, very loosely based on the Christmas story, right? Like when you hear the kids right, reciting right. their lines, yep. they're like, oh, we're going to see the king. We have to follow this comet in the sky yeah. or... Yeah, we, the scrolls of Plutonia instead of the Bible. Yeah. Right. And so all you would have to do, very conveniently for the children, all you would need to do to sort of hijack the play would be to tweak a few of the terms and lo and behold, not yeah. to borrow a phrase, you have a uh, a Christmas pageant. This is an ongoing sort of trend in the movie too, is the idea that like all of the um, sort of cultural signifiers of Christmas time are still there. They've just been corrupted or undermined um, by the yeah. libs. So like you're listening, so, so um, Bob's in the car with his friend at some point they're listening to the radio and they hear rudolph the red-nosed reindeer i think no they hear grandma got run over oh, by right so they so they yeah so they hear <laughs> right so they hear christmas they hear christmas music they hear um carols but they're all the stupid like cancel christmas versions of christmas carols right they don't sing yeah. about christ they don't mention the bible or the yeah. or jesus yeah. now now, before we head to sort of the crescendo of where all this is going, there is one more character we need to introduce. And I won't spoil what happens mm. with him either. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this is this is Bob's guardian angel. It does not give anything to way to say he's sort of a guardian angel because he looks fucking bizarre. He looks like Willie. Yeah. Well, I would describe him as a mix between Gandalf and Sam Elliott. <laughs> yeah. I would also say like Willie Nelson meets Bob from Twin Peaks. Yeah, he's in kind of like a duster. He has long gray hair. He has a cowboy hat on. And his whole effect is kind of like whitish gray. He looks different than everyone else. And we see him um, at the train station when the sun Mm -hmm. goes off to war. And and kind of in the background at various key moments in the story, at the sun's sun's funeral. Yeah, he's at the graveyard. And you think, who the hell is this? Totally. And um, a, a one quick observation along the lines of the hugging uh, thing in the pharmacy. Another moment that I enjoyed in the in the graveyard is Bob goes up to his son's grave when everyone else has kind of left the mm-hmm. funeral. But importantly, and I, I think, and hilariously, the other people at the funeral have are not going to their cars. They, they've all just wandered over to another grave. <laughs> and like, you see all the funeral attendees just like gathering around a monument in the distance for some reason. And, and it's just like, clearly they just wanted them out of the shot. But the implication is that they're all just like, Hey, let's, let's all go look at that grave. <laughs> so I, I think that with Bob, you know, taking back Christmas, the, the basic idea is he's a part-time mayor. He starts digging in on the internet to all these these facts and logics, and he goes into the storage room, he gets out the Christmas decorations, and he has two lackeys who are kind of working for him slash his friends, and there's a great moment. So his whole uh, message, his whole idea here is, we 
everything we're doing is legal. We just have to have the balls to do it. And he says to his friends, did you know that 150 years ago, Christmas was made a federal holiday? And they both say, I didn't know that. So he starts putting up decorations and his whole argument is it's 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 all the basic conservative stuff, which is like, well, I'm not technically celebrating. I'm just celebrating my religion. You can celebrate your religion, too. Like if you're he says at one point, if you're a Muslim, you can pray in the middle of town. And that's great. I want to also be able to put up my Christmas angels. Well, he does say importantly in that in that argument, which I think. He says, he says, but let's not let's not prevent the majority of us who are Christian from celebrating our holiday. I mean, Christmas is for everyone. If you're a Muslim, you want to pray to Allah in the middle of the town square. By all means, please. It's one of your rights. If you're Jewish, you want to display your menorah and blow your shofar. Go ahead and accept my admiration for standing up for what you believe in. But don't tell me and the majority of us that believe in Jesus Christ that we don't have the right to celebrate the day of his birth because it's Christmas. So it's, it, does, it does create the actual essential tension, which is the idea that like the majority of normal people yeah. are trying to do the thing that they normally want to do, but the, but, the, but the weird people who do some other kind of thing are preventing us from yeah. doing it yeah. because yeah. of yeah. like the civil liberty, the sort of separation of church and state, civil liberties bullshit. Which is like the and again, it's like this is where they betray the fact that they don't actually understand what separation of church and state means or what the argument actually is, because you know they they say in the movie it's the same amount of scandal to put up a giant Christmas tree, something that every town does, and to put up angels on the courthouse, like in their mind, they're like, "Oh, you just don't want us to celebrate Christmas, but guess what it's a federal holiday, and there is one character who kind of tries to the the villain who maybe we should talk about now um who kind of tries to say like well so yeah so there's the villain emerges and you know it's going to be the villain because we got to cut cut to washington dc so immediately we know we're in trouble because this is the you know the swamp and there's a man whose name is uh the hammer that's his nickname and Uh he is black and he is i think it's not too far to say a stand-in for obama yeah warren hammerschmidt Warren Hammerschmidt, a.k.a. The Hammer, who calls the town from Washington, D.C. We don't know what his job is. He basically says, you need to shut this down. And the only way they introduce him is the guy from TV who you've seen on the talk shows. Who is this? The Hammer. Warren Hammersmith. The Warren Hammersmith from TV? Exactly. Obviously, your mayor is not fully cognizant of the statutes that pertain to the separation of church and state. Can you remember all that? But he, it's clear he's a lawyer of some kind. Uh, he's always smoking cigars. Yeah. He's very smug. He's very smug. He kind of reminds you of, well, on, on Seinfeld, it would have been like Jackie Childs. Right. Yes. But he's, he's right. sort of a Johnny Cochran kind of, he, or he, he kind of puts you in mind of, of that sort of black lawyer figure. Um, but yeah. as, as we were watching it last night and Max pointed out, he also drives a Bentley. There's a scene where he's um, <laughs> standing out. He's, he's just gotten out of his car and yeah, he has a Bentley. So he's this black guy who's cigar smoking, drives a Bentley and kind of harassing, you know, this, these, these simple small town folks who just want to celebrate Christmas. They just want to say Merry Christmas. Right. So he comes into town and he and he's the one who's trying to bring the hammer down, yeah. so to speak. And I wanna and I'm gonna I'm gonna put a pin on the hammer because I'm gonna tell you some things about the actor who plays 
the hammer in this in this film. But I'm, let's come back to it. And uh, Jesse, like, what is he saying? Well, like, what is he trying to argue about? This is what's most interesting because it's like here's where you really see the writers of this film who clearly have one side of it. Here's really where you see them try to suss out what is the separation of church and state and what is the argument and more base most of the time he's just saying you can't do that you can't do that because he's putting up like angels and stuff there's one scene where the mayor uh bob revere finds an old angel and he's like man this brings back some memories um so like part of it is just like no 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 but then there is a town hall meeting where he squares off with bob revere and you kind of see them try to engage with the debate and bob revere obviously is dominating i mean he's basically saying this is a federal holiday. We can do it if we want. This is what a lot of people believe, um, et cetera, et cetera. And he he kind of makes the argument that you've heard before, which played out in my own hometown, which is like, well, as long as we include things from other r- religions too, it's fine. Which of course they don't do. They don't ever put up like a Jewish, a Star of David, or like <laughs> anything else. But it's like, oh, as long as we do that, it's fine. And there's kind of it's interesting, I think, because Bob Revere starts out by basically saying, look, we're all just trying to get along. Everyone's just trying to do their thing. And then the the hammer kind of comes back at him one point and says, like, well, you have to consider other people, too. You know, we're trying to represent all the people who live here, not just the Christians. And Bob Revere kind of snaps and is like, you know, in a weird way for the movie, I think that he you can see that they don't actually have a response to that, because when he says, hey, but, you know, you're the mayor, this separation of church and state, you also have to think of other people who aren't Christian. He literally just says, you have no jurisdiction here. And that's kind of it. Like, they don't really have a response to. But and I think that the, the note I made watching this, though, is that, like, it is not an exaggeration to say that these people believe in a theocracy like they they genuinely don't understand the people who made this movie. I think the concept of church and state, like they, they genuinely do think that the, the government is Christian and it should be Christian. And also all the wars we fight are just Christian wars. Like, I think that's why they can't quite understand the argument because they, they don't understand the concept of it. it I mean, right. which I'm not well, saying they, to be yeah. like these stupid conservatives. I'm just saying, I don't yeah. think in their own words, they really understand what, the issue is i think we should also get to the way in which uh the military and the the just wars abroad are really kind of just like completely entwined and endemic to the 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 thing that we're describing in this film like so much so that like like nothing nothing would make sense outside of the wars and the justified sort of sacrifice for the people who participate in the wars and that kind of comes to comes to a head in the end of the film in a really clear way i also think that like I think you're right, Jesse, that, um, of course, like, yeah, the counter-argument is not given any, like, real credence, that, <laughs> which is sort of, like, to be expected in the film. Of course, Bob Revere says, if Muslims want to pray in the center square of the town, let them do it. And then also let us put our Christmas lights up at Christmas time. Yeah. And that's, like, that, like... That would be a step forward for America, especially at this moment, and especially the sentiments that produce the wars that are being celebrated in this film. If, like, a bunch of Muslims in a small town started praying to Allah in the center of the town square, I don't think that, like, freedom of religion would have been the... Um, and we know this from recent history. I mean, just look at the the, the so-called Ground Zero Mosque, mm-hmm. right? Like, this yeah. is a real-life example of people wanting to build a place of worship, and you know, it was a, a major controversy. But I, I think to pick up on what yeah. Jesse was saying, I mean, you do see what freedom, quote unquote, freedom means for these people. 
um, which is essentially to kind of live in a world in which their own image is reflected back to them. Right, right. You know, right. and and it's kind of yeah. uh, you can't really disentangle it from kind of actual public dominance because the the yes. issue is not yeah. whether Bob Revere can put up a Merry Christmas sign in front of his ho- house. It's right. you know what what is what is the government of this town actually doing? And it's kind of like, well, you know, the majority should just have their way. You know, some of these things are are complicated at a legal matter, but I mean, we kind of see the way religious liberty as used by the right kind of means being able to do whatever the fuck you want. And and being told that you're right. Yes. And kind of being maximally exempt from any kind of negotiated compromises when it comes to religious liberty. Yeah. Right? As Sam said, it would have been a step forward if like the movie would have ended with putting up a, a manger and then a Star of David and, you know, whatever other religious symbols um, might have been appropriate seasonally from different religions, right? Like, but that's not really what happens. And so you really see that that in a very Trumpian sort of way, the issue is one of like dominance or submission. And there's no really mm. middle ground. Right. You're winning or you're losing. Yes. I, as a Christian, can say and do whatever I want, both with legal sanction and cultural affirmation. Uh, and that's what freedom yes. is. Maximal freedom to do whatever I want, regardless of how it affects anyone else or, you know, whatever, you know, just in, a, in the course of normal democratic pluralistic politics, you know, like people from different point of views hash out compromises and negotiated settlements. And like, maybe you don't get everything you want, but you get something and other people are made to feel more comfortable or get something they want. And, you know, but that kind of compromise is totally foreign to the spirit of this film. The the reason that it works as a story, as like a, as a fiction is that um, it's not that like these people are asking for just minimal representation in a pluralist uh, religious uh, sort of public square. It's that, um, that, that they specifically, right. the mm-hmm. Christians are being disallowed from presenting their, from, uh, from, from showing their values. And, and in order to like make that actually make sense, you yeah. have to, create these scenarios that don't actually make any sense where like people wouldn't be allowed to put up a nativity scene on their own property or they are a sign in their house that says Merry Christmas or a kid wouldn't be allowed to bring a Bible to school. A couple, a couple quick thoughts on that. I think that, you know, it's, it's a tired game to obviously accuse the religious right of hypocrisy, but I think it's, it's really, you know, I just found myself thinking over and over again that it's like, I don't know. It's like, you're all religious. It's like the, the whole message. I mean, I was raised Christian too. It's like the whole idea is you don't need these things. That's like the whole, like, that's kind of the whole concept is like, you, you have your religion with you. And like, it's just, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's such a, it's a dumb and obvious thing. And, 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 but it's like, it's so baffling to watch all the up in arms about like putting an angel on your house. And I I, I think to that end, there's a degree to which there's this kind of libertarian, um, I don't even know if you call it nihilism or what it is, but it's like really the thing that they come very close to saying and sort of do say a number of times in the film is that freedom means free to do whatever I want. And it's like, I'm not really free if I can't see a Christmas star on the courthouse. Like I'm a Christian. I want there to be a Christmas star on the courthouse. And if you're telling me that I can't have it, then I'm not free. Like I, it's, it's like I, I, the, the freedom is total freedom. And like you said, Matt, for the majority, it's like, well, if we all want that, then why can't we just have that? Yeah. The, there's a line that I think very aptly summarizes this. I don't think I've ever used it on the show before, but um, it's by this 
um, I think a political scientist named Frank Wilhoit, but he defined conservatism this way, which is that uh, there must be in-groups whom the law protects but does not bind alongside out-groups whom the law binds but does not protect. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And that's 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 the perfect summary and encapsulation yeah. of the worldview on display yeah. in this film. This actually ties to my big, big thought on the film, which I came to at the end is like what this film is actually doing. But prior before that, or we don't have to talk about that right now, but I, I think that what's interesting is if you parse, as Sam kind of said, if you parse the actual arguments that are being made, the film acknowledges that it has absolutely no standing. I mean, because it's like they basically admit like there's no reason that the people in their homes can't do what they want, but there's an absolute conflation with the political and the cultural, which is like not being able to have an angel yeah. on the courthouse is the same as the wife who is afraid to say Merry Christmas on her party invitations. She's like sending out yeah. party invitations right. and she says, I'm writing Merry Christmas again for 15 years or whatever. I've been saying happy holidays. And I'm yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to say Merry Christmas again. It's like it's so interesting that that's given the same amount of importance as like the church and state separation, which is like, but no one told you you can write Merry Christmas on anything you want. Like, but they they clearly don't think that that's the case. They clearly think that it's like I am being. It's like you said, Matt. They want it to be reflected back to them. They want everyone to give them a pat on the back and a handshake and say mm-hmm. you're good. You're a good Christian. You're right. It's not enough to just say Merry Christmas. You need everyone to say Merry Christmas. I think that the keystone to understanding that question is like, why, why, why can't you just be comfortable just living your religion in the way that you are and then sort of like thinking clearly about what public space is and what, what the government's obligations are to people who are not in the majority uh, religious or otherwise is the military aspect of this film. What, what, why don't we just tell them how the movie ends and then offer yeah, commentary? Yeah, that's a good idea. So the mayor gets fired for doing all the Christmas stuff. And the big city hammer is um, threatening to take away funding for the VA um, Mm -hmm. or something. And also he shuts down their food kitchen, although that's never explained at all. Um, Yeah. And he gets fired from being the mayor and then he kind of snaps. He goes to the food pantry and he heroically hoists the giant uh, um, sign that is in the shape of a cross that says Jesus saves he hoists it back up onto the building, and his son, his grandson Chris, his helps little perfect haircutted grandson helps him. His perfect haircutted grandson, who is kind of like suddenly just been a little whiny piece of shit the whole movie. He really he just is. Like stops Such doing anything. Like suddenly shit. he just stops caring and is like, I don't want to do anything. Yeah. And importantly, Matt, one of the bikers helps him too. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The bikers come um, back and they help him lift the cross up onto the roof of the food pantry. Yes. So just as in Chekhov's gun, when you see the pistol on the mantle in the first act, <laughs> you know that gun will be fired in the third act. And, and thus the Latino biker gang, yeah. who, by the way, they're, they're referred to as a motorcycle gang in the film. Like when you see the yeah. news clips and they're mentioned, they help yeah. Bob Revere hoist this cross, not just a cross, but it says Jesus saves on it. Um, yeah. back up on the mission, right? Well, it does remind you of the sort of bikers for Trump kind of like bikers as libertarian yes. outlaws kind of thing. And um, the whole town is watching and importantly, the media is watching. The media is covering it and they've kind of are a presence throughout this. There's a reporter person and two anchors in the studio and they're watching all this go down and and kind of taking it in in their kind of liberal um, atheistic way. And Bob Revere uh, gives a big speech on the top of the roof 
that is basically he says at one point something to the effect of like they're coming in the night like thieves to take our freedoms away mm-hmm. yes a biblical phrase by the way a thief in the night is how the rapture will happen as you probably have heard i am no longer the mayor of this town so tonight i stand here a freedom fighter this country was founded by freedom fighters men and women who love their country and their creator 400 years ago Our forefathers left the religious oppression of another land to build this one. And the first thing they did, the first thing they did was to put a cross on the shores of the Atlantic. But it was more than a cross. It was a symbol that in this land, a citizen has the freedom to worship as he or she desires, or the freedom not to worship at all. My fight isn't about colored lights or a tree on the city square my fight is about freedom and taking back what has been stolen from us we are losing freedoms one by one that our forefathers our brothers in arms and my son died for it is time we stood up for what they died for for what we believe in our rights are being destroyed perhaps forever but don't you see We're letting it happen. We're asleep. We sleep and they come in like a thief in the night and they take what's left. Wake up! We can't sleep anymore. Wake up and look around you. Look what's coming over the horizon. We can't let the enemy take one more inch. Not one more inch. And what I was thinking watching this movie is, like, if this movie were more honest, it would end with him driving a a bomb into City Hall. Like, he's absolutely losing his mind. And he, like, you know, he's, you know, it'd be far more honest if he's just, like, shot up the town. Yeah. yeah. But, Um, but But instead, he gives this speech after which he is arrested. Yep. And he's thrown in jail for liking Christmas too much. Well, but we there's some great details here. So he is hauled off in handcuffs. Right and walk to the police car. Yeah. He's arrested by the next door neighbor, aka yeah. hot cop, the the new boyfriend of his daughter, the hot at cop. The, yes, at the urging of the hammer, the big city at, um, ACLU right. Lawyer. So 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 what legal you know uh, justification this had is left hazy, and then finally Bob is put in the cop car and he's, as he's pulling away, the the grandson Christian Revere runs up pounds on the window the car stops for some reason apparently the cops are like whoa whoa whoa, okay we'll stop and then the the grandson leans into the window and gives him a salute yes and and bob revere salutes him back and then he goes to jail now when he's in jail (laughs) um he's put in this dank dark cell and there's another presence in the cell beside mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. And this is where the guardian angel comes into play because this, yep. this, this um, Gandalf slash Sam Elliott type character produces a, a small radio on which Bob then listens to the high school production of this play that, as we know, the, te- the, the, the teenagers have been plotting to commandeer and turn into a true Christmas pageant. And listeners... This, I think the most insane part of the movie might have happened during this play. 
Oh, yeah. Well, and I just want to quickly say, I want to say, yeah. The Space Odyssey play is great, by the way. We see several clips of the actual um, stupid liberal pageant, and it's pretty cool. The kids are singing like kind of ethereal music and doing modern dance. And I thought it was pretty awesome, and someone who made this movie clearly had a lot of fun doing that. So my heart goes out to whoever like put their effort into that. Um, clearly, it's not meant to be cool. It's meant to be incredibly lame and, and bad. Just to... I won't fully rewind, but just to say the kids, there's a subplot with all the kids from the school or like a group of seven or eight of them getting together to plan this overthrow. And these are, I I think this is, you know, what you just said, well, my big point is basically, of course, that most of this movie is like a fever dream for Fox News grandpas. Yeah. Um, And I'll say more on that later, but I think it's so important that the grandson, a big lesson is that the grandson has to learn how cool his grandpa is (laughs) and salute him. And in the same way, these kids who, like, you know, should be out playing Nintendo and doing drugs, are, like, getting together in the attic and being like, wait, so, like, what happened at the nativity? Like, hold on, there were shepherds there? <laughs> like, this this shit's crazy. Like, they're just super into the Bible and Christianity, and they're going to call the new play that they're going to play Operation Christmas. Yeah, and I just want to say, Jesse, that subplot, if you can dignify it with that name, they... <laughs> That is clearly aimed at teenage Christian youth groups. Totally. As I was watching this, the corny humor, the kind of like stand up in a public school, fight for your rights kind of thing. This is, if you were a conservative Christian, a fundamentalist or an evangelical, especially, you know, you and you were in junior high or high school, you know, this is the part of the movie where they said, you know, one part of this audience will be teenage youth group Christian kids. Uh, We got to give them something. So this whole yep. teenage subplot is is about the agency and power of teens to stand up and make a difference in their public schools, which was a major theme of my own adolescence, you might say. Stand up to these <laughs> these fucking queer drama directors who want you to put on these gay plays and do some hardcore <laughs> Christian shit instead. Well, yeah, I mean, the public school system is corrupted by gays and liberals, and that's kind of the the not subtext. Uh, yeah. super text yeah, yeah. of this movie. So the kids do the play and they've been preparing. They have like the janitor, of course, is a righteous man. Um, and he actually fought with uh, Mayor Bob Revere in Vietnam and he loves the sheriff or he loves the mayor. We learn that way at the end. There's a small subplot where the lying uh, fake news media publish a headline about how the mayor is actually not a war hero, which is an incredibly bizarre diversion that doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, um, not really. But it basically leads to them having to like say, yes, in fact, you are a hero and we love you. Um, so mm-hmm. the janitor helps the kids sabotage the play. They like lock the curtain levers and lock the lights because they know that the teachers are going to try to stop them. The play starts... And right when the two aliens are supposed to come out and do their big scene about getting, like, the scrolls of Plutonia, they throw off their costumes. These other kids come out as angels, and, you know, they just start doing the Christmas nativity with just a burning passion. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. the principal and the theater director lose their minds. They try to stop it. The theater director gets locked in a closet. The principal runs backstage. Let's hope he gets out of the closet someday. The audience is, yeah, the audience is watching all this sort of impassively. They're kind of into it, but they don't seem to be that affected. And then um, Chris, the grandson, who has, again, just been a total piece of shit this whole process. Ever since he got mad about Christmas, he stopped caring. He wouldn't, he refused to be in the pageant for no reason whatsoever. He just was like, I don't want to do it. 
And he has a change of heart. He steps out on stage, ruins the play. He doesn't know a costume <laughs> on or anything. He just steps out in front of one of the angels and starts yeah. talking. And he's like, says something to the effect of, we've all forgotten what Christmas is about. We need to remember. Hit it. They they put down a big screen. Oh, my God. And his dad, who was the soldier who died, his dad famously, from the very beginning of the film, as Matt mentioned, his dad filmed everything in his life. He had a little shitty camcorder. And we know that his son found some of his videos, but there was one video that his that uh, Chris wasn't supposed to watch. And Chris, we are very clearly, we're seeing that video. And it is yeah. a video he recorded from inside his bunker in Iraq or Afghanistan. And he's him talking to his uh, unborn child and wife and saying how much he loves them and and saying how happy he is to be fighting for them. And he's everyone back home. You know, I hope they're appreciating all the work I'm doing. So the whole audience, the whole town is here. They're watching this pageant. They're watching this massive projection of... And he's saying also, like, what we're fighting for is your right to celebrate Christmas, like your right to... To celebrate Christmas. To to be there. It's Christmas Day or night or whatever when he's saying... It's Christmas Day. And he says, I love you. Merry Christmas. And right as he says the word, their bunker gets hit by a bomb. And in front of the entire town, he dies on screen. Yes. And they all watch him die. And <laughs> it is it's, like for a piece of shit movie, it is a truly shocking moment. Like literally the little kid showed a snuff film to his entire town and they all clapped for it. I, I mean, I was stunned and I turned to Max and we started laughing. because yeah. I mean, it wasn't funny to see a man die, but it was so shocking. And so yeah. this film clip plays. And then I thought maybe the most important symbolic moment of the movie was so as we mentioned the kids had commandeered the play so now the background there's a a manger scene there and after this clip plays where the dad's blown up the son goes to the side of the stage drags out an american flag and puts it in front of the manger so you have the the kind of symbol of american patriotism and the symbol of the birth of christ mingling on one stage he grabbed that flag and he had such like loathing and f- and anger in his eyes. I kind of expected him to like plunge it into the principal's heart. And then, uh, so the flag is planted in front of the manger and you're waiting for the moment where the crowd will stand up and cheer, yeah. right? Because again, Chris gives this kind of soliloquy. Again, it's all happening against the symbolic backdrop. Uh, and then who is the first to stand up and clap? But of obviously a veteran in full army fatigues i believe with some yeah. kind of like maybe an, an arm in a sling yeah some kind yeah. of obvious injury uh and he comes up and starts the slow clap no no he salutes he salutes oh right right he, he salutes, salutes as does chris the principal does the slow clap yes yes because uh, that you know people start standing up and saluting the principal comes out and you can see he's kind of panicking but because he's a cuck a liberal cuck he of course gives in and says that was a wonderful job and starts clapping and everyone stands up and starts cheering and applauding too and um and, and of course remember this whole time Bob in jail through the good graces of the guardian angel who has the uh, radio. So he's listening with the radio, uh, the, uh, you know, Willie Nelson, Bob the Demon, um, Sam Elliott character gives it to him <laughs> yeah. in his cell. And then in the next scene, he's suddenly in Bob Revere's cell. Very yes. strange. Um, Bob mm-hmm. is a little thrown by this, but he's not that thrown by it, even though it's yeah. uh, completely impossible. The family moves from the play 
to the jail. So yeah, they basically stormed the courthouse. Kind of like, well, you made bail. Congrats, you made bail. Your family's here. And he's let out. And he's let out. And there's an important moment, by the way, where one of the media people covering this event, there's a woman who's a news anchor. She's watching it. And it keeps cutting to her sort of glassy eyes as she's watching him give one of his speeches. And then at the end of the speech, they cut back to the newsroom and the news guy's like, well, haha, that was interesting. And the woman anchor sort of stands up and he, the guy says, where are you going? And she says, like, where I should have gone a long time ago to have yes. Christmas with my family. <laughs> uh-huh. And when <laughs> Mayor Bob gets out of jail, <laughs> he greets his grandson, he greets his wife, he greets his daughter-in-law, and he greets the news anchor who we realize is the estranged liberal daughter. Yes, yes. I mean, she. Um, she it was this great, like, she got up and she... Yeah, she got up and walked off on air. It was this, you know, and, I'm I'm mad as hell and I'm gonna not gonna take it anymore yeah. moment. And we realized that's the daughter, and she's been, you know, the kind of skeptical liberal media figure looking at all this, you know, down her nose a bit. And but at the end, she's so stirred by one of Bob's soliloquies that she again stands up and walks off on air. To the film's great discredit, I mean, this is kind of a set an easy setup that they completely botch because if if they had put in the effort, it would have been very simple to make her character a big character in the plot and have the liberal media be like constantly trying to dig up dirt on him and like they could have really stressed that she was like a really nasty reporter and then there would be this incredible twist. Instead, she's just kind of there occasionally such that yeah. you don't really notice her that much. You're just like, oh, the media. Um, and then there's this big reveal, which is shocking, but it's kind of mostly shocking because you didn't really know that she was a character. And you're like, yeah. oh, <laughs> you yeah. from uh, from earlier. All that really, I have really one big takeaway from the movie. and I'll, But before that, I'll just say, um, he gets out of jail and he asks, well, what about the guy who's in the jail next to me, the gray-haired man? And the prison guard is like, there's no one in this jail with you except for old, <laughs> what's his name? Um, uh-huh. And, oh my gosh, could it be that he himself was an angel of some kind or even Christ? Very yeah. probably. Be- be- because, the wife, because the wife says, uh, she's like explaining to Bob, you know, everything that happened at the play. And, and Bob's like, I know, I listened to it on the radio. And the wife right. says... But it wasn't broadcast on the radio. Right. <laughs> it, 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 it was this very much, you know, if any of you have seen the the Christian poster with like the the one set of footsteps in the sand or whatever, it was like, when I saw there was only one, when there was only one set of footsteps in the sand, I knew that's when you were carrying me. When, <laughs> I knew the, thing, ra- like... when the radio broadcast came through from the unbroadcast <laughs> event, that's when I knew. Um, so yes. he gets out of prison and he goes to the to the courthouse steps and um, the whole town is there cheering for him. They love Christmas. They're saying Merry Christmas again. It's great. And, um, and Mr. Hammer is chomping on his cigar and he sort of comes up to the cop and he's like, you going to arrest these people? Again, for gathering and saying Merry Christmas or no, they're singing Silent Night. They start singing yeah. Silent Night uh-huh. and the big city, uh, you know, DNC guy is like, are you going to arrest these people for singing Silent Night? Mm-hmm. And the cop is like, oh, I can't arrest the whole town. And then the cigar chomping man just like smiles and walks away. And he's just like, ah, well, what, yeah. what you going to do? Wait, so what the cop actually says is, 
I thought your organization was against overcrowding in prisons. Boom. Take that, libs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, classic lib hypocrisy. Yeah, um, hypocrisy You only much? want to put people in jail for singing Silent Night. I thought that was one of the most clever moments in the entire film. So here's, we can get into our final commentary. Here's my, my big takeaway about this movie. Yeah, please, is please, the please. point of this movie beyond the obvious message that it's selling, but the actual point for viewers, the thing it's it's instilling for its viewing base, which you have to assume is an older group of people, is that the culture war and the actual war are the same thing, and that saying "Merry yeah. Christmas" is a form of war, and there's a lot of stuff in here. I think there's a certain kind of self-soothing for people, which is like. Yes, the troops are the most important people in America, but if you say Merry Christmas, you are also a troop in your own way and in a very important way. Like there's a very interesting moment in that beginning part where it's like, oh, you died in, you know, my dad died in Afghanistan and, you know, you fought in Vietnam. And the implication is like, you need to fight your own war. And it's just as important as those wars. And it's happening right now. And I think for the audience of this, who you have to imagine is not fighting in the military and is watching TV most of the time and is not doing probably much, they have to really... I think there's a certain Mm -hmm. utility in basically saying, hey, you're heroes too. Like, the biggest hero is the one who puts the Christmas decoration up and gets mad at Starbucks. Um, That's, I think, the real takeaway from the movie is like, this is not just like worship the soldiers, it's worship the soldiers, but also we're soldiers. And, well, well, Jesse, kind of to build off that point, I would say you know, diagnostically watching this film, you know, what can we learn from it? One thing is that, you know, like strictly speaking, Christian nationalism makes no sense, Hmm. right? Like Jesus was executed by the Roman Empire. There's just no way in which the Christian view of reality and, you know, the Christian story can sort of faithfully be turned into a form of nationalism. Mm-hmm. Right, like like the Christian message of universalism. You know, who is my neighbor? It's anyone yeah. you find sick on the side of the road. Right, like right. You know, it, it's it. It doesn't. Christianity is not a faith built for nationalism, or it shouldn't be. Um, but when you see the the flag in front of the manger, and you kind of watch the film, you know, I think it provides an answer, which is like, well, how do you square that circle then? If Christianity is such kind of unsuitable material to build nationalism out of. And you say something like what the film says, which is that, you know, uh, the sort of patriotism embodied in the film, um, the, the, the sort of very pro-USA uh, right-wing message, it, it ends up, they try to make it work by saying, well, this is the place where we can truly be Christian, mm. right? Like, this is the nation that has given Christians a true opportunity to live out their faith unimpeded. And and at a couple, at least at one point, in a very important moment, uh, I think it's Bob Revere goes back to the Puritans, and basically the Puritans escaped relig- religious persecution. They came to the shores of America, and the first thing they did was erect a cross on the beaches of Massachusetts. Mm. And and so this is the place where Christianity is given full scope to be lived out, you know, fully and without legal impediment. And and so that's how they try to square the circle from what I could tell. America uniquely deserves the admiration and support and full-throated kind of embrace by Christians because this is the place where you can actually truly be Christian. And that is what's imperiled. The father soldier also in his final broadcast 
um, when before he gets killed, he also, I think, to that point, says people over here can't celebrate Christ- uh, Christmas. If they do, they'll be killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's the yeah. obviously the, the added implication there, which is like, you know, in that sense, Christianity is both a stand-in for freedom. It's like Christianity stands for that most important thing, which is being free, free to do what you want, free to be who you are. Mm-hmm. But it's not a stand-in. It is also just the literal thing. I mean, Christianity also, yeah. in this case, just represents Christianity. Like, the greatest yeah. freedom is to be Christian. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's uncomplicatedly true in the film, right? Like like Christianity is just true, and and all the the majority, all the characters you see really are Christians, and yeah, so that's that's definitely in the mix too. Jesse, I think there's one last point I'll say to that point is interesting is that this is a, a for a, a movie that is about Christmas and is about being a Christian, it's just as much about the holiday of Christmas. Like there's very there's virtually no scripture. In this movie. Right. There is virtually mm-hmm. no reference to actual Christianity, except for, like you said, yeah. the reference to Thieves in the Night, and oh, yeah. obviously this the nativity. Really but, like, there's no... We never see them in church. They never go to church. They never... There are no religious figures overtly. It's very much the cultural signifier of Christianity. Yes, yes. It's like, I am an American Christian. Yes. I mean, Jesse and Sam, you might think the First Amendment means... Uh, mostly the freedom to worship unimpeded, and that that might be expressed in the film by having them say, "Go to a uh, you know midnight mass on Christmas Eve, or show up at church Sunday morning." You know, actively worshiping the God they profess to believe in, but that's not the case. It's no. all rendered in cultural and political terms. There is yep. no theological, theologically, or I should say, like in terms of religious worship, there's no moment of significance in this film where they actually practice the Christian faith. We never see them receiving the Eucharist. We never see them singing a hymn. We never really see them, again, as I said, in a church at all. It's no, pure, they, it's, it's religion rendered in purely cultural and political terms. And, and that is essentially why, I mean, that is the essence of why we're in the place we are now. And that's why these people who probably watch this film could so gladly and enthusiastically support Trump. Trump is right, Christianity, right. in a sense, rendered in entirely cultural and political terms, like filtered through the, again, the the kind of shallows of American, you know, the way Americans tend to uh, uh, conceive of and practice Christianity. It's identity politics. Christianity as identity. Yes. It was something that I thought was like this guy, Bob Revere, like harley driving christian pharmacist mayor how high on his hog so to speak he's living right now with trump like he would love this <laughs> right i mean like coronavirus mm-hmm. aside like what trump has provided is exactly what this movie demands conservative christianity as a performance of a certain identity and it being kind of acknowledged and seen like valorized by some sort it's of broader, validation. Yeah, validation by some like federal or broader power. It's all validation. Well, and and I think what's interesting is you think about this town in this movie in the age of Trump, and it's like all the things they want to do in this movie, they can do. They can put signs on their houses that say Merry Christmas. They can write letters saying Merry Christmas. They can put up a tree in the town center. Like none of that is they can bring their Bible into church in the school. You can read your Bible in the school. Like everything they want to do like if if you fast forwarded to the Trump years in this town, everything would be exactly the same, but they would feel validated because there'd be someone telling them we're saying Folks, Merry Christmas. We're saying Merry Christmas <laughs> yeah. again. And it's like that's what they want. There's not actually any right that they're being persecuted with. Like put the they can put the cross back up on the church. 
Like it doesn't, no one's stopping you from putting the cross on the church, but you just want to have not a commander in chief who's going to sneer at you or who you imagine is sneering at you. You want to have a commander in chief who says you're a good boy. Yeah. Uh, There's one little detail I've been saving for the end. Um, And this was one of the buttons on Bob's Harley vest. Oh, yes. Yes. I have to give this credit to Max because we were watching this last night and he said, and he paused it and he said, Matt, do you see that? And it was a button on Bob's vest that had the number 6666, you know, the, the, the number for Satan. Sure. Uh, in like one of those red X'd out, mm-hmm. uh, like no, no 666. There will be no Satan in this town. No Satan in this town. And I just want to tell listeners, you know, if you've listened to this entire conversation, <laughs> it's, we haven't even begun to do justice to this film. Aesthetically, it's it's that kind of small detail, the 666 crossed out button on Bob's Harley vest. It is, this is the, this is just the right wing fever dream. It's, as someone who has moved in these waters, it is aesthetically so perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really amazing. And it's, it's really impossible to capture in words. No discussion we could have of this film could possibly capture the, the 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 thrill really of watching this and you know the sudden shifts the the plot jumps the again it's i this is best understood as a a a a, a film working in the groove of postmodernism i think <laughs> and it's 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 teaching us about the appeal of absolutes in an age when grand narratives are viewed with suspicion <laughs> I think that it all. I think it's. I think it sets us up to do this again in the future, which is to sort of and, and also like. I think it's representative of the genre of this kind of Christian propaganda film that gets produced, and it's kind of confusing why exactly it got produced. And I know that Jesse pays close attention to how that exactly. Oh yeah, happens. And I know we're running out of time. I have a quick button. Just you can put this at the end if you want. I just want to quickly say what you should know about this movie is that this movie um, cost. Um, a number of millions of dollars. It was financed by a billionaire who put um, a couple million dollars into it. Um, it made, it has made up to this point $3.3 million and it has been successfully sued for $34 million. Sorry, $32 million. Um, it was sued for a, ro- <laughs> a robocalling lawsuit and the actual punishment, if it had been fair, would have been a billion right. dollar fine. Right, and so the the robocalling lawsuit was that whoever was marketing this film, like, basically used like classic political campaigning techniques to robocall people to get them to watch it. Yeah. So, 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 Jesse, what you're saying is this film lost about twenty nine million dollars. It lost perhaps an <laughs> unprecedented <laughs> amount of money. Um, I, the other thing, the last thing I want to say about Rocky Mountain Pictures to go out on is, as I said, they, their their heyday was really 2012. They released five movies that year. They didn't release a movie for two more years. They released a movie called The Principal, which is, to quote from Wikipedia, a um, 2014 American independent film that rejects the Copernican principle um, and supports the long superseded notion that Earth is at the center of the universe. Um, After that movie, and the only section on the Wikipedia page for that film is, quote, complaints from featured actors and scientists (laughs) um, who were... We're duped into being in the movie. After that movie, the operation moved to Chicago and uh, changed its focus to, quote, black, Latino, and Asian-made indie films. This is the thing that I was holding back saying earlier, and I don't know if it actually is sort of like a deflating moment to end it on. But, okay, the the, the character of Warren the Hammer Hammerschmidt the guy who plays him. Did you recognize that actor at all? I recognized him, but I didn't look up who he was. 
So he's he's Fred the Hammer Williamson. Fred Williamson was an AFL uh, football star. What? He played briefly in the NFL, but then he was in the AFL, and then his. But most of his stardom arose from him appearing in some very early and popular black exploitation films. Really? Oh yes, including including a film called The Hammer, where he plays this kind of criminal who becomes involved with the mafia and makes his way up. The most famous films that he's in is um, Black Caesar and Hell Up in Harlem, where he plays a character called Tommy Gibbs who's like a black gangster who makes him way, his way up into the mafia and becomes a mob boss. Mm. But these are, so these are 70s era black exploitation films. And I found it like just so fascinating that it, the figure who plays Warren, the hammer, Hammerschmidt, in this basically white Christian propaganda film is this figure who, has played, who played the star, starring role in these black exploitation films in the 1970s. And it made me basically come to the sort of like cheap but easy conclusion that these films could be described as Christ-exploitation films. <sighs> That's... Films that are like completely camp. Yep. Like, like, it's not like... It's a, they have no joy to them. That's the only difference. <laughs> right. There's... Well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe if you love this shit, you could you could enjoy it. But like, but but in the sense of like, it's campy, it's propagandist, it's telling you about who are the victims and who are the uh, heroes, like who are the perpetrators of injustice and who are the people who are who experience injustice. Like, I mean, some black exploitation films are more nuanced than others, but like, sort of one of the things that those this this period in filmmaking where like black filmmakers were like allowed to make these films was about taking vengeance against a society and a film and Hollywood culture that had normalized black oppression and masculated black men and sort of depicting this righteous reclaiming of black manhood and street justice and you know this sort of valorization and validation as we described um about this film totally what's his name we call him the hammer dj hammer the next heavyweight contender i think he's got a lot of gas everybody wants a piece of his action Uh, i'll simplify it for you Whitey's got Robin Hood, and we've got Big Sid. Can I make one more actor note? Yes. So you know the the cop, the hot cop across the street. His name is Rusty Joiner, and and he is uh, a model actually, and has been on the cover of Vanity Fair, Cosmopolitan, Men's Fitness, Rolling Stone. Deservedly so. He's a good looking guy. Deservedly so, and he also appeared in RuPaul's video. Looking good, feeling gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder if they knew that whenever they cast him for this role. <laughs> <laughs> well, these movies are always a fascinating intersection of people whose careers are on the downward spiral, careers who are on the upward spiral, and people who exist only in this universe. Yeah, right. You know, like, there's a lot of people who are, like, kind of trying to make their name, and then this is, like, a weird footnote, and then there are people who are, like, and on the last legs or have kind of, like... Isn't it kind of crazy that, like, there's a deliberate reference to this character's previous career 
as a black exploitation star <laughs> in this film, right, in which he is depicted as the hammer of the federal government and and political correctness coming down upon this Christian, this small Christian white community. That is just like, what in the fascinating. World? I wonder. I mean, so what I what I wonder about is is he is this just a job for him, or my gut tells me is he one of many actors who have had an awakening and now want to. Um, you know, be involved in important movies that tell important stories. Um, I will, I will do some research on that. And and folks, there's there's a lot more of this kind of stuff out there. And I think we've only really scratched the surface of the kind of uh, world of these films. That's right. So so listeners, if you like this, and you you obviously should, I think this could be a recurring feature. Nothing would make me happier. Um, if I don't drown in backed up gray water in my house, I will be back any day. All right. Please don't, Jesse. We should we should make sure to uh, plug your your new podcast. Yeah, I just have started a uh, podcast with my good friend Oliver. It's called Tech Talk. It's on uh, a number of streaming platforms, I believe, and on Twitter. And uh, it's a little bit of a guide about tech and also, you know, dads, how to be a dad on the internet, what it's like to be a dad in the modern world, and be just really tough. Yeah, it is hard. It's especially <laughs> hard for dads. Um, but also, you know, it, dads are often the people who need to know the most about tech. So we talk about updates and uh, we talk about tech news. Talk about our good friends Elon Musk and and other such characters, friends in our minds, anyway. Um, and we put episodes out every week, or or sometimes more when we're in yeah. quarantine. Wow. Um, so if people should check it out if they want a little brief little bit of tech and maybe even a little bit of yeah. comedy. <laughs> well, I don't find it I don't find it funny at all. I find it really serious. It. As a person who identifies as da- as a dad online without having any You don't have to be a dad to feel like a dad, yeah. No, I'm just saying I don't have any children, but I identify as a dad online yeah. and I just feel like these guys really speak to all of my anxieties appreciate and that. sort of like the things I care about and I appreciate that. I should say it doesn't really speak to me cuz I only identify as a daddy online. <laughs> Oh, yes. Uh, All right, guys. This was tons of fun. I hope we can do it again. We will. Thank you, Jesse. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. Thanks, everybody. All righty. Bye bye. Bye bye. The red is for the blood that flows. In places we've forgotten The white resembles innocence In some ways we've been lost in The blue it stands for vigilance And holding fast to righteousness But have we lost our way? The stars are for remembering The glory and the victory Where proudly we can say Oh This is freedom This is freedom Along the straight and narrow The last ounce of courage by Our patriots and heroes Where grace abounds and evil dies Truth resounds above the lies It's only 
found one way, and here we are today.